Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter, at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and we are now on Spotify as well. Funny enough, I had never put the podcast up on Spotify before, so I have to give a shout-out to Raw Attitude Podcast fan, the Scottish Nerd, at Scott underscore nerd on Twitter, who suggested that I should put it up there. So if you're a Spotify user, be sure to give the Scottish Nerd a follow, because he's the reason why we're up there now. And, of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Like this one, which came in from friend of the show, Jeffrey from Massachusetts, on February 1st. Quote, Welcome back. Glad the podcast is back. You did not miss a beat. End quote. Now, some of you listeners may remember that I actually gave a shout-out to Jeffrey on the last episode of the podcast, but he wrote a brand new review after I put up the new episode. So you know what? I'd say he's earned another shout-out for that. So thank you very much, Jeffrey. All right, well, we've got a lot to cover on this episode, so why waste time? Might as well jump right in. But before we get into Monday Night Raw, I would like to quickly take you back to the prior night's episode of Sunday Night Heat on July 11th, 1999. And why would I do that? Because this episode of Heat featured a promo which many people consider to be a classic. And because this is 1999, it should come as no surprise that the promo in question was delivered by The Rock. When last week's episode of Raw went off the air, The Rock had just defeated Triple H in a steel cage match, but then he was immediately sneak attacked by your reigning King of the Ring, Billy Gunn. And on last night's episode of Heat, The Rock let us all know how he feels about Mr. Ass. Now, on to badass Billy Gunn. The Rock understands what took place. The night you won King of the Ring, you got down on your knees, put your little hands together, and you said a prayer, and it sounded like this. Oh, dear God. You see, my name's Billy. And I just won King of the Ring, but there's one problem. Everybody still thinks that I absolutely suck. And then at that point, Billy, your house started to shake, the heavens opened up, and God himself spoke to you and said this, Bob? But my name's Billy. It doesn't matter what your name is. You are absolutely right. You do suck. But there is one thing and one thing only you can do. You must go find the man who is simply electrifying. You must go find The Rock. 
of God. Anybody but the rock. Know your role and shut your mouth. And then, Billy, as fear went through your body, tears went down your cheek and piss rolled down your leg. Your house started to shake again, the clouds parted, the heavens opened, and what seemed like millions of voices all said to you in unison, Jabroni, if you smell what the rock is cooking. And so, in one promo, The Rock just killed Billy Gunn's career. Well, I mean, not literally, since he still occasionally wrestles in AEW in the present day, but needless to say, he metaphorically murdered the man. And also, if you're like me, you probably thought to yourself, wait, The Rock cut that legendary promo on Sunday Night Heat, not on Raw? Strange, but true. So there you have it, probably one of the better moments in the history of Heat. And in case you're wondering how Billy Gunn felt about that promo, funny enough, he actually addressed that very issue relatively recently in the present day in May of 2021. He sat down for an interview with Chris Van Vliet where he was asked about that rock promo, and here is what he said. Because I just literally heard about this two days ago. Oh, really? Somebody brought the same thing up because they asked me, go, hey, remember the promo that Rock cut on you? You know, God and Billy and shut up and all that. Did you really think that was funny or were you mad? I said, I couldn't stop laughing. Okay. I thought it was probably one of the funniest things that's ever been done. Like, it's hilarious and I happen to be a part of it. Because fans think that him calling you Bob is burying you and... I don't think so at all okay. because it was him. Like, people... It's wrestling, for God's sakes. If your feelings get hurt in wrestling, I don't know if anybody's ever noticed that heels make fun of baby faces. Baby faces make fun of heels. Like, and, and if you have something like Rock, let's face it, he can, he can toss some stuff out there that's pretty funny. If you don't laugh, like, if I don't laugh at that, like, yeah, I wasn't laughing at the time when I was out there because I was staying in character. But afterwards, I almost peed in my pants because it was so funny. It is so good. It's good stuff. So there you go. Apparently, Billy found The Rock's mockery of him to be as entertaining as the rest of us did. Which means we don't have to feel guilty about the fact that The Rock pretty much single-handedly ends up killing Billy's singles push. Spoiler alert for the coming weeks. So sit back and, uh, enjoy that when it happens, I guess? But now, on that note, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, July 12th, 1999, and we are live from Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include three episodes of Raw, six episodes of SmackDown, two episodes of Nitro, including the third ever episode of the show in September of 95, and just one pay-per-view, Judgment Day 2000, which is actually really good. And in case you need a recap, last week Vince McMahon made a challenge to WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin. If The Undertaker beats Austin in a first blood match at Fully Loaded, then Stone Cold will never again be allowed to challenge for the WWF title. But if Austin wins, Vince McMahon will never be allowed on WWF television ever again. Truly, some high stakes. And this week we don't even get a customary recap package, we just go straight into the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... My sign is on TV. 
Jerking Off 24-7, I Like Bacon, Hillbilly Jim for Mayor, McMahon McSucks, I Eat Cat Turds, Val Mom Wants Your Phone Number, Let the Puppies Breathe, The Guy Next to Me is a Rudy Poo Candy Ass, and on a related note, The Jabroni Behind Me Can't See, I Like Eating Chinese, and Chinese, of course, is spelled with a Y instead of an I, I Steal Towels from the Smackdown Hotel, No Limit Equals No Ratings, Forget the Puppies, Show Me the Kitty, and I Lost My Job for Raw, which frankly I feel needs a bit more explanation. And we officially kick off the show with your WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin heading to the ring. And listen, I know that watching episodes of Monday Night Raw from 1999 is not everyone's cup of tea, but do yourself a favor one of these days. Turn on an episode of Raw in 99 when Steve Austin is the first man through the curtain, and just listen to the goddamn pop that he gets. It is truly a sight to behold every week. No matter the city, no matter the size of the building, it always sounds like the roof is about to literally blow off the top of the arena. It honestly gives me goosebumps every time I turn on one of these old episodes. So anyway, Stone Cold has a microphone, and he says that he took Vince McMahon's advice last week, and he did indeed get his own lawyers to draw up a contract so that Vince wouldn't be able to weasel out of the stipulation. Austin then requests for Vince to come to the ring and sign the contract, and when Vince emerges from backstage, we see that he's sitting in a motorized wheelchair. Now, you're probably thinking... Wait, did Henry accidentally turn on an episode of Raw from the fall of 1998 when Vince was in a wheelchair after the Brothers of Destruction broke his ankle? No. I assure you, this is July of 1999, and the interesting part of this is Vince being in a wheelchair is actually a shoot. On the 4th of July in 1999, he was riding his motorcycle when a driver backed her car out of her driveway without looking, and Vince crashed right into her car. And when I was researching this, sadly, one of the only sources of information I could find about this was Bruce Pritchard's podcast. And so, in the interest of getting all the details for you, the fans, I did indeed listen to an excerpt from his show. Now, according to Pritchard, Vince told him that when he collided with the car, Vince actually went over the top of the car and ended up breaking his tailbone, and so, hence the wheelchair. I will add one other amusing detail, though. Pritchard says he was notified about Vince's motorcycle accident while he was away on the Wrestle Vessel. And if you're not familiar with the Wrestle Vessel, it was basically a cruise with WWF superstars present on the ship. And you can actually find a picture online of all the wrestlers who were on the boat in 1999, so feel free to Google that. But in the meantime, here's a quick list. Chaz, Test, Edge, Christian, Val Venus, The Big Show, Billy Gunn, Al Snow, and the still-injured Mick Foley. So yes, it was mostly mid-carders plus Foley and Big Show, but still, I kind of wish I had gone on one of those cruises back in the day. Alas. But anyway, back to Raw. So Austin calls out Vince, and Mr. McMahon does indeed wheel himself down to the ramp to the ringside area where a table is situated. Stone Cold puts the contract on the table, and so, let's pick it up from there. I'm going to sign this, but you actually expect me to sign this before you sign it? You expect me to trust you after all the times? You've made a career out of screwing me, Vince McMahon. You expect me to trust you? Right. I'll sign it, all right. But I'll sign it right after you sign it. Well, you talk about ironing. You want me to sign this damn thing? Give me a hell yeah. I'll be happy to sign a son, bitch. 
but you've got a piece of property of mine, and I ain't going to sign a damn thing until you hand it over, and I think you know what I mean. Property? I, I don't know. What no, 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 wipe this stupid little look off your, face, off your little face. You're supposed to bring a smoking skull belt, and I want to know what the damn thing is. When you hand that thing over, then I'll sign your little contract. It's reneging already. What? Not reneging. Austin's property. Where's the belt? Well, I'll put it like this. We can do this, Vince, the easy way. Oh, no. Or we can do this the hard way. Oh, no. Uh-oh, that don't sound good from Vince. The easy way is you hand over my belt, I sign the contract, we got a deal, and everything's official. Now, if we choose to do this the hard way, which means you won't hand over my damn belt. I'll take this here contract, shove it so far up your ass, I'll have to open your mouth to sign the damn thing. So what I suggest you do is go get one of your little old flunkies to bring my damn belt out here, hand it over, sign this damn thing, and we got a deal, and that's all I got to say about that. Oh, wait a minute. Is, is filling that pin with 
Austin's own blood. Is that what he did? Let me see. Let me see. I'll sign his damn contract. Let's get out of here. This McMahon just signed the contract for fully loaded in Austin's own blood. Oh my gosh! Have you ever, JR, have you ever seen anything like that? A contract signed actually in blood? My God, what a what a night this is gonna be. Austin is busted wide open. The rattlesnake is down and hurt. So as you heard there, Vince refused to sign the contract until Stone Cold did, but Austin first demanded that Vince return his smoking skull belt. In case you need a reminder, The Undertaker took possession of the smoking skull belt when he beat Austin for the title at Over the Edge, but Taker had been wearing the standard big circular belt until Stone Cold took the title off him a few weeks ago. So anywho, before Vince can agree to those demands, the lights go out and Kane's music hits. Why Kane's music? Well... Lately, they've been teasing a reunion of the Brothers of Destruction, and you may recall that last week on Raw, Taker and Kane actually teamed up to give the big show a post-match beatdown. However, even though his music plays, Kane does not show up, but The Undertaker does. With Stone Cold facing the stage, Taker jumps him from behind and smacks him in the face with the smoking skull belt, and after some additional punches to the forehead, we see that Stone Cold has once again been bloodied by The Undertaker. And once that happens, Vince hands a fountain pen to Taker, and he proceeds to fill the pen with Austin's blood. Vince then signs the contract for Fully Loaded in that very blood, so the stipulations are now official. Well, I mean, to be honest, it kind of looked like Vince was barely able to put any of that blood onto the document, but still, it was a cool concept. And then we get what I believe was a bit of an impromptu moment, because The Undertaker walked up the ramp and headed back toward the locker room, but Vince's motorized wheelchair was unable to scale the ramp due to the sharp angle of it, so Shane McMahon had to run down to ringside and push his father to the backstage area. Bit of quick thinking there from the boy Wonder. Oh, and by the way, more on him later. But there we go, it is now official. At fully loaded, depending on the match result, it will either be Stone Cold never again getting a WWF title shot, or Vince McMahon never again appearing on WWF television. Yes, obviously, both of those stipulations are ironclad, and neither man will ever be able to go back on them. Surely we can all agree on that. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our first match of the evening. But before I tell you what it is, let's flash back to the previous night on Sunday Night Heat once again. Brood members Edge, Christian, and Gangrel were facing corporate ministry members The Big Boss Man, Midian, and Viscera in a six-man tag team match. Edge was about to get the pinfall on The Big Boss Man, but then, well, something unexpected occurred. Here's a cover now. Referee distracted by Midian. And wait a minute now. Gangrel, what is he doing? Gangrel just impaled Edge in the middle of the ring. Bossman hooks the leg. What the heck is Gangrel doing? And Bossman and the Ministry pick up the victory with the bigger story. It's Gangrel turning his back, delivering an impaler Yes, that's right. With Edge about to score the winning pinfall for the Brood, Gangrel surprisingly grabbed Edge and nailed him with an impaler DDT behind referee Teddy Long's back. Bossman then made the cover, Teddy turned back around, and yes, that was good enough for the three count. So, essentially, Gangrel just handed himself a loss, but hey, I guess he made his point. 
So yes, it appears that the brood is no more, and so that takes us to tonight's match, Gangrel versus Edge. And fortunately, these two are actually allowed to go out there and have a very nice five-minute TV match, but of course, because this is the Attitude Era, we ultimately get a bit of a strange finish. Eventually, Edge manages to nail Gangrel with a spear, but instead of covering him, he gets on top of Gangrel and starts punching him in the face. Referee Mike Kyoto then tries to get Edge to break it up, so Edge then gets in Kyoto's face and shoves him into one of the corners, but for some reason, we don't get a DQ there. But meanwhile, Gangrel has rolled to the outside of the ring, and now he's walking up the ramp, so Edge leaves the ring as well and follows him. And when he does that, we can see that Gangrel's usual ring of fire on the stage area has somehow been set ablaze once again, and both men start brawling near it. And this culminates when Gangrel eventually proceeds to shove Edge down into the fiery hole. Now, I should note that Jim Ross is selling this as though Gangrel pushed Edge down into a pit of flames, but really, I mean, it's only the stage area which is on fire. Presumably, once Edge was pushed down into the hole, he just kind of landed on the metal ramp that Gangrel usually comes up on. Although, now that I think of it, that sounds like it probably hurts quite a bit. I do have to say, though, very cool visual. If you get a chance, go back and check this one out, because, well, it's not every day you get to see a man chucked into a burning hole. And by the way, we never actually get a bell to signal the end of the match, so I guess we can assume that it's a no contest? Nothing is more Attitude Era than a man being sent down to the pits of hell, and the show just continuing on as though nothing happened. And by the way, in case you're wondering if Edge feels any ill effects from his trip to the Underworld, uh, no, he just shows up on the next episode of Heat six days later and attacks Gangrel. Totally fine, no biggie. So yes, presumably, this blood feud, no pun intended, must continue. And speaking of blood, we then cut backstage where a doctor is telling a bloody Steve Austin that he's going to need 10 to 12 stitches to close the wound in his forehead, but Stone Cold refuses and says that he has to go whip somebody's ass. So fortunately for us, it appears as though we may be getting some more Steve Austin on tonight's show. And then after a commercial break, we come back to Jim Ross providing us with some pretty big news. Gentlemen, and certainly the, the big news, the biggest news in a long time here in the WWF, broken on WWF.com earlier today and in the New York Daily News, and that is the fact that Jesse the Body Ventura is returning to the ring. It's going to happen at SummerSlam, <laughs> and King, we're going to have a huge press conference uh, in Minneapolis at the Target Center that the fans are welcome to attend, and uh, Jesse the Body is not going to come alone at the Target Center this Wednesday. Stone Cold's going to be there, wow. The Rock, The Undertaker. The McMahons, uh, Triple H in China, Paul Bear, a huge array of WWF superstars with Jesse the Body. Once again, Jesse the Body shocks the world. But what's his role going to be at SummerSlam? This is going to make this the biggest SummerSlam of the morning. Are you ready? It's going to be a huge press conference all this Wednesday. We'll have more for you on that later here tonight. Yes, that's right. Jesse the Body Ventura will be returning to the WWF in some capacity next month at SummerSlam 99. For those scoring at home, Jesse has not been seen in the WWF since August of 1990 when Vince McMahon fired him over, of all things, a contract dispute over a video game. Apparently, Sega had approached Jesse about using him in a video game, but Vince tried to nix it because the WWF had a contract with Nintendo, and so... That was the end of Jesse Ventura in the WWF. Until now. 
So why is he being welcomed back into the company? Well, the answer, of course, is because at this point in time, Jesse Ventura is the acting governor of Minnesota, having been sworn in just about six months ago on January 4th, 1999. And as a quick side note, that means that his reign as governor began on the same night that Mankind won the WWF title and WCW did the finger poke of doom, so go figure. So yes, one of Vince's former wrestlers is getting a ton of mainstream publicity, and he's in a position of power, so hey, welcome back, pal, ha <laughs> been trying to get in touch with you for years, ha <laughs> ha. And by the way, in case you're wondering if Jesse's political success emboldened any other wrestlers, when they show Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler at the commentary table, we can see that the King is wearing a button on his jacket which says, Vote Lawler, Mayor, Memphis, Tennessee. Spoiler alert, his candidacy will not be as successful as Jesse Ventura's. But anyway, as you heard at the end of that clip I played, Degeneration X's music plays, but they don't come out right away. Instead, we cut backstage where we see the road dog Jesse James and X-Pac confronting Howard Finkel. If you recall last week when the police were looking for Road Dog and X-Pac, Finkel is the one who stooged to them, and so when we cut backstage, we see that the Fink is on his knees in front of DX. But don't get the wrong idea, though, because their plan is to punish Finkel by tarring and feathering him. Although really, what they pour on him doesn't really look like tar, it looks more like a bucket full of gravy. But regardless, it does the trick, and Road Dog and X-Pac then empty several pillows full of feathers onto Finkel. One slight problem, though. Apparently that quote-unquote tar was a bit slippery, because when Road Dog starts dumping feathers on the Fink, he slips and falls right on his ass. And his good friend X-Pac then responds to that by openly laughing at him. Ladies and gentlemen, your two remaining members of DX. Not exactly the strongest iteration of the group, that's all I'm saying. But after their humiliation of Finkel is complete, Road Dog and X-Pac do indeed make their way to the ring, and at this point, I have to note a quick bit of unintentional foreshadowing. Jerry Lawler makes fun of Jim Ross by saying, quote, Your proctologist called, I think they found your head. And I bring this up only because just six years later, they will air an actual segment on Raw where Vince McMahon as Dr. Heine does an operation on a fake Jim Ross where he removes JR's head from his own ass. So there's that. A little bit of foreshadowing. But anyway, X-Pac and Road Dog have a mic, and they have something to say about the fact that Triple H, Billy Gunn, and China are trying to claim that the rights to DX belong to them. So let's pick it up from there. And pay attention because this segment goes in a rather unexpected direction. Now, Hunter, China, Billy, your sorry corporate kiss asses wants a right to DX. Well, you're going to have to beat us and take our last breath, pal. Is that fully loaded? Your asses are grass, and we're going to smoke it. Along with a road dog. You see, the D O double G and that X to the P to the A to the C, we bleed neon green. They're not the X. And speaking of green, you see, boys and girls, it's not about those dead presidents. It's about what's in here. So I'll tell you this much. Myself and X-Pac will always be representing that D.
and rolling on that X all day long. So yes, surprisingly, Road Dog and X-Pac get interrupted by X-Pac's tag team partner of the past few months, Kane. Pac says that Kane has to choose either him or The Undertaker, but before Kane can provide an answer, Triple H, Billy Gunn, and China jump the three of them. And Hunter Billy and China are in control until The Undertaker comes to his brother's rescue. Taker then gets in Kane's face, but unlike X-Pac, he says that he will not make Kane choose between them, and Taker then exits the ring and heads to the top of the stage. Kane then starts walking up the ramp, but he stops and looks back toward the ring where Road Dogg and X-Pac are standing, and then we go to break, so we have no idea who he chose or even if he made any choice at all. And once again, we get a segment where various feuds intersect with each other. 
As a reminder, Road Dogg and X-Pac are feuding with Billy Gunn, Triple H in China, but Billy Gunn is also feuding with The Rock, and Triple H is in the corporate ministry with The Undertaker, and The Undertaker is trying to reunite with his brother Kane, who has been tag team partners with X-Pac for the past three months, and meanwhile, The Undertaker is also about to challenge Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF title. Got all that? I suppose your mileage will vary as to whether or not your brain can handle all these storylines overlapping at once, but personally, I will say, though, I do appreciate the effort. Not sure if it's 100% effective, but I will give Vince Russo credit for not just keeping everyone inside of their own bubbles. And no, I'm not just saying that because he follows me on Twitter. So after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Tag Team Titles. Your brand new tag team champions, the Hardy Boys, accompanied by Michael P.S. Hayes versus Val Venus and the Godfather, a.k.a. the team, which may or may not be called Supply and Demand. And before getting into the match, I have to note two things. Number one, in Val's usual pre-match sexual innuendo promo, he gets a bit weird because this week he says that the big Valboski is a lot like Mick Foley? Yes, that's right, because they're both hard to beat and they never stay down. I have to legitimately wonder if Mick Foley was flattered by that comparison. I feel like he probably would be. And the second thing to point out is that this is the Monday Night Raw debut of the Hardy Boys theme song that we've all come to know and love over the years. And I say that it's the Raw debut because they actually premiered it on last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat prior to their match with Draws and Prince Albert, so go ahead and mark that one down in your history books. And early on in the match, Jeff Hardy got Val Venus down in one of the corners and started putting the boots to him, and then he briefly stopped to remove his shirt and imitate Val's signature hip-swiveling dance. And I only point this out because it's not something I would have ever pictured Jeff Hardy doing. I mean, think about that. Can you imagine Jeff Hardy being that wacky? I didn't think so. But yet, here we are. But aside from that early flurry by the Hardys, this match looks like it's about to be a squash because in very short order, the Godfather nails a Death Valley driver on Jeff Hardy, which segues perfectly into Val Venus coming off the top rope to hit his money shot splash. And that's good enough for the one and the two... But not the three, because Michael P.S. Hayes runs into the ring and nails Val in the back of the head with one of the tag titles right in front of referee Tim White, and that, of course, results in a disqualification. Your winners of the match are the Godfather and Val Venus, but the Hardy Boys retain their titles. And if you think I rushed through the explanation of this match, just know that the whole thing lasted for literally a minute and a half, which is too bad, because I really would have liked to have seen more from these two teams, but hey, it's Monday Night Raw and the Attitude Era, so you know how that goes. And then, once the match concludes, the Hardys and Michael Hayes walk up the ramp and celebrate, but they get jumped from behind by the Acolytes, the very team they beat last week to win the tag team titles. But then, strangely, when Farouk and Bradshaw are beating on Matt and Jeff, the Godfather and Val Venus come to the Hardy Boys' rescue, even though the Hardys literally just cheated against them to retain their titles. The logic here is just, well, it's, it's something else, I'll say that. And eventually, a bunch of referees run down to ringside to separate them, and at this point, I'm completely confused. The Hardys have been portrayed as heels, but they beat the heel acolytes last week and got to celebrate in their home state, but then this week their manager used a heelish tactic to keep the titles, but then immediately after that, they fought alongside two babyfaces to beat back a heel tag team. Someone please explain this to me because everything is starting to get dark and all I can smell is burnt toast. But, you know, never mind, let's just move on. So we then cut backstage where Michael Cole is with Triple H, Billy Gunn, and China, who are claiming to be the real DX. Hunter says that Billy and China will defeat Road Dogg and X-Pac at Fully Loaded to earn full rights to the DX name, 
but tonight, they're going to get their asses kicked just for fun. And Triple H also encourages Kane to join the Road Dogg and X-Pac if, quote, you can pull his nose out of the Undertaker's ass long enough. There's a visual for you. And after commercial break, we get something I have literally no recollection of, so take a listen and see if you can figure out what this is all about. Satori. Sammy Steve. Strength. Okay, now you're probably thinking to yourself, Henry, why did you just play a perfume commercial in the middle of the Raw Attitude podcast? But actually, what you heard there was a vignette for Tori, who's been off TV for roughly the past month and a half. And in case you were wondering what was being shown there, Tori is completely naked, but she's strategically covered up by curtains and bedsheets, and she has various words written on her body, such as submissive, aggression, enigma, and sable stalker. Well, okay, not that last one. But honestly, out of context, this probably could have been a perfume commercial, but if that were the case, then I would actually know what the point of it was, to sell me perfume. In this instance, I'm not really sure what they're going for other than... Tori is sexy? You know, in case you needed to be reminded. I suppose it's helpful to have a refresher. And from there, we go back into the arena, where your WWF Intercontinental Champion Jeff Jarrett is heading to the ring, accompanied by Deborah. And I have to say, there are usually a lot of signs in the crowd which have some sort of puppy's pun written on them, but tonight, the cameramen are zooming in on them all over the place. Without exaggeration, there are probably hundreds of puppy-related signs in the audience here. In 1999, those fans clearly knew what they wanted to see. So let's take a listen to what Double J has to say, at least until we get a rather surprising interruption. Well, I got a little news for everybody here tonight. What's that? Until each and every one of you start showing me the greatest intercontinental champion of all time, the proper respect then those puppies are going to stay in my doghouse, and I'll tell you <laughs> when they can come out to play. Wait a minute. You're the man. What is she? You, you're the greatest in a, in a kind of Oh, look out. What's this? Here comes Stone Cold. Oh, he's not wasting any time. What's he doing? Austin Bandy just this up. Yeah, Jeff, get him. Austin, then a Jeff Jarrett. Undertaker, you want my blood? You son of a bitch, I want a piece of your ass! Tonight, right here, in this ring, no rules, no ref, anything goes, and that's all I got to say about that! There's a challenge, Undertaker! This damn personal right now! He wants more of the Undertaker tonight! about this. I know you want to be you and The Undertaker, 
That's not gonna how it's going to work. Because it's going to be you, The Undertaker, and Kane. Can't you see? He's recruiting his little brother. Little. So either way you look at it, it's going to be you against Kane and Undertaker. It's going to be a handicap match anyway. I mean, you may not even want my help, but you know I want to kick both their asses just as bad as you do. What? So I say, let's do Cold Steve Austin and the Big Show. Send those two freaks to hell tonight on Raw. They need to bring their big ass down here. The bottom line is somebody's going to get their ass whipped, and that's the bottom line. The Stone Cold Sunset. So as you heard there, Jeff Jarrett got interrupted by Stone Cold Steve Austin, who proceeded to deliver a stunner to Double J before booting him out of the ring. Austin then called out his fully loaded opponent, The Undertaker, but instead he got The Big Show. And as a reminder, much like Stone Cold, The Big Show got bloodied up by The Undertaker last week, and so Show offers to team with Austin tonight to take on The Undertaker and Kane, who may or may not be reunited. And by the way, I have to say... Big Show gets a pretty nice-sized pop there when he proposes that match. The fans are clearly behind the idea of Stone Cold and Big Show working together. And so, Austin agrees to the match, but just when you thought the segment was over, once Stone Cold starts heading up the ramp, Jeff Jarrett returns to the ring, grabs a mic, and starts talking trash. So, Stone Cold heads right back into the ring and gives Jarrett one more stunner for good measure. Pretty entertaining. And I have to say, there are two other things I found amusing here. Number one, Austin is coming to the ring and beating up Jeff Jarrett in front of Deborah, who is Stone Cold's real-life girlfriend at this point. And number two, it's been confirmed by several people who were in the company at the time, including Jim Ross, Jim Cornette, Vince Russo, just to name a few, that Stone Cold flat-out refused to work a program with Jeff Jarrett. And if you'll permit me a few moments here, I'm going to quickly dive into this backstage Austin-Jarrett feud since they end up crossing paths on this episode. So the first reason why Austin didn't want to do a program with Jarrett is because he used to work for Jeff's father, Jerry Jarrett, in the USWA, and apparently Jerry paid Austin so little money that he was basically living off of boiled potatoes while he was working for the company. 
And the second reason why Stone Cold refused to work with Double J stems from a work shoot promo that Jarrett cut when he returned to the WWF from WCW on the October 20th, 1997 episode of Monday Night Raw. You see, in this particular promo, Jarrett proceeded to go a bit off script and mock Stone Cold's famous catchphrase, which, needless to say, did not sit well with Austin. So I'm going to play a clip of that Jarrett promo, followed by an interview that Vince Russo conducted with Stone Cold on his podcast in 2017, where they talk about what happened backstage right after Jarrett's promo concluded. And speaking of attitude, what about Steve Austin? Now here's a guy who has lowered himself to shaving his head and coming out here every week, not once or twice, but 10 or 15 times, and saying the word ass, that's right, saying the word ass just to get a reaction, just to get noticed. Stone Cold, no, 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 Stone Cold, you will always be the ringmaster. And as far as your, ladies and gentlemen, Stone Cold, as far as your blasphemous merchandise, that offends me. Austin 316 offends me because what you're doing is ripping off the Bible to put money in your pockets. Hey, you get what you pay for, McMahon. Don't try to stop him now. It's going to be your judgment day. He goes out there, he cuts the promo. I'm, I'm right behind the curtain. Midway through the promo, he delivers the Austin 316. Blasphemy, I don't like it. Uh, you use it at the Celticia. Steve, literally 30 seconds after he says it, somebody comes and joins me and stands next to me right behind the curtain. <laughs> and it's you. And I'm like, bro, I'm like, I, I, the first thing I want to say is, Steve, I did not write that line. I, but I'm not, I can't sell Jeff down the river. But you kind of like, you kind of held him responsible for saying it. So, bro, you're waiting there, and your face is blood red, bro. He walks through that curtain. You, you read him the riot act this far from his nose. I swear, Jeff, with all, uh, uh, Steve, with all due respect to Jeff, I never saw anybody backpedal, like not even in a cartoon, not even in a movie. Bro, I don't think I ever saw you more hot than that. I think that was probably the hottest I'd ever gotten in, in the WWE. It was like instant. As soon as he started knocking that 316, dude, you got to understand by this time, I'm eight years in the business. I ain't exactly been, you know, given a whole lot of opportunities saying, hey, you're the chosen one. Go go get them, champ. We're behind you. Holy smokes, dude, I had to climb up that damn ladder, fight all the bureaucratic red tape, BS, and politics down in WCW, get a little bit of a hope spot at ECW and some direction from Paul Lee. All of a sudden, ringmaster, you put me on color, I get a chance to get an opportunity Bam, 316 happens because Triple H ain't going to win King of the Ring because of the curtain call. All of a sudden, my thing is over, and I'm like the hottest thing on two feet in the wrestling business. And all of a sudden, you're going to just waltz in here and try to yank that from me or or, or uh, throw a big tub of water on my fire? 
No, it was it, that was a total f you. That ain't happening yeah. because I'm standing up for everything, all the hard work that I just put in this son of a bitch. So yeah, that was a real come to Jesus meeting, and that was a. It, I, I don't care who the individual would have been, they would have gotten the same conversation. So there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. Jeff Jarrett's comments about Austin 316 being blasphemous essentially killed any chance he had at working a program with the hottest star in the wrestling business. However, as we saw here tonight on Raw, Stone Cold is more than willing to come to the ring, hit a few stunners on Jarrett, and leave him laying. Also, I just have to point out the funny little dichotomy that we have here. The Rock cuts a promo burying Billy Gunn, and Mr. Ass says, Come on, it's just wrestling. Meanwhile, Jeff Jarrett cuts a promo mocking Steve Austin's catchphrase, and Stone Cold is ready to fucking kill him. Again, I suppose your mileage may vary as to which method you prefer. And by the way, I also have to point out the fact that on this episode of Raw tonight, we just had the WWF champion attacking the WWF intercontinental champion, and in years past, that probably would be a huge deal. But, you know, it's the Attitude Era, so it was just done to pass some time until the big show could come out and cut a promo. Fun times? But anyway, just to recap, we now have another match set for tonight on Raw, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Big Show versus The Undertaker and Kane. Definitely looking forward to this one. And when we return from commercial, it is apparently time for a six-person tag match, Triple H, Billy Gunn, and China versus The Road Dog Jesse James, X-Pac, and Kane, even though just moments ago a match was literally booked with Kane teaming up with his brother later on tonight. Okay, then. But as it turns out, Kane's music plays twice, but he doesn't show up. And so it appears as though Road Dogg and X-Pac will have to go two versus three, but before the match begins, Triple H grabs a mic, and he has a proposition for Dog and Pac, so take a listen to what happens next, because it actually did catch me by surprise. United with the well, Undertaker. it looks like the big goof's not going to make it, is he? So I'll tell you what, I'll cut you guys a little deal. Why don't you just give us the rights to DX right now? I like that so far. And we won't three on two kick your ass. What do you say? Can't beat that deal with a stick. We got two words for you. What? There's the answer. I guarantee you, Road Dog and Xbox ain't gonna back away. You smell what the rock is. What? Now what the hell is going on? For God's sake, the rock is coming out here. Now we know that the rock and Triple H are gonna meet at fully loaded. It was signed last night after Heat went off the air. What's he doing? Or maybe the rock is gonna be the the third man with Team DX here. So yes, as you heard there, the Road Dogg and X-Pac ended up getting a surprise tag team partner, and it was none other than The Rock. Although prior to that reveal, I have to point out that you could briefly hear the crowd chanting HBK, because apparently they thought that Shawn Michaels would come out of retirement completely unannounced to wrestle in a random tag match in the middle of an episode of Raw in Louisville. Wishful thinking on that one, my Kentucky friends. But obviously, what they got was a very nice surprise, too. And so we have a new six-person tag match, Road Dogg, X-Pac, and The Rock versus Triple H, Billy Gunn, and China. And early on in the match, I need to point out something that Jim Ross has been saying about Billy Gunn over the past few weeks. He thinks he's Brad Pitt with an attitude. 
So yes, you heard that correctly. JR is repeatedly comparing Billy Gunn to Brad Pitt. And in case you need some perspective, Fight Club comes out just two months after this episode of Raw. So picture Billy Gunn next to incredibly jacked Tyler Durden Brad Pitt. No offense to Billy Gunn, but I don't quite see it. Maybe that's just me, though. So interestingly, The Rock actually plays the face in peril for most of the match before making the hot tag to Road Dog, who then proceeds to clean house. He actually ends up doing his juking and jiving punches to Triple H and Mr. Ass at the same time, but then China runs into the ring, so Road Dog punches her in the face, knocking her to the canvas. And I have to say, that got maybe the second largest pop of the night so far behind Austin coming out. Those Louisville fans really love seeing a woman getting punched, but, you know, it was a different time and such. And after that, Road Dog continues his offensive, and I do mean offensive, because he then gets Billy Gunn in position for a pump handle slam, and yes, before he hits the move, he does three thrusts while standing behind him, essentially pretending to bang his former tag team partner in the ass. But again, I should note, the crowd popped big for it. However, the pump handle slam only got a two count, as China ran in to break up the pinfall, and so Road Dog responded to that by punching her in the face once again. At least he's consistent, I guess. And from there, X-Pac hit a Bronco Buster on Billy Gunn, followed by an X-Factor, but we got yet another breakup of a pin attempt as Triple H ran in to stop the count. But no matter, though, X-Pac tagged in Rock, who simply proceeded to hit a people's elbow on Mr. Ass, and this pinfall was not broken up this time, so it was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winners of the match, The Rock, Road Dog, and X-Pac. And honestly, the final sequence of that match was pretty much just the babyfaces all hitting their finishers on Billy Gunn, which doesn't exactly make your reigning king of the ring look all that strong. As if Rock's promo on Heat the previous night wasn't already enough to make him look like a chump. Regardless, though, it was a fun little match with a nice surprise that I was not expecting. And from there, Jim Ross kicks it backstage to Terry Taylor, who of course he can't help but refer to as Rooster, and Taylor is standing by with a dress-wearing Draws and a singlet-wearing Prince Albert. Draws says that life is about experimentation, and right now, he enjoys wearing dresses. Fair enough. And he then kicks things up a notch by saying that tonight, he wants to have an evening gown match, and he then walks off and says he has to go wax his bikini line as Albert disappointingly shakes his head. Now, about Albert for just a moment here, he clearly does not like the fact that Draws is wearing a dress, but on this particular night, he's wearing a light blue singlet which says, just pierce it, and there are two sharp arrows pointing directly at his cock. So I ask you, what's more humiliating, wearing a dress or rocking a singlet that calls attention to your pierced dick? You be the judge. And after a commercial break, we get a quick cut backstage where we see The Undertaker talking to Kane as Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler put two and two together, Kane didn't show up to team with DX a little while ago because he has clearly reunited with his brother. Makes sense to me, and, well, as we all know, when the commentators speculate as to where an angle is going, it always ends up being accurate. Now, before our next match, I have to note one of those little time capsules that always makes me feel nostalgic, because Jim Ross tells us that Fully Loaded will be sponsored by Starburst Hard Candy, which is obviously no longer an active product here in the present day. And honestly, it probably shouldn't be anyway. I mean, who exactly was that marketed toward? The 65 and older crowd who couldn't chew a regular Starburst but enjoy sucking on a hard candy? Bizarre. But my point in bringing this up is that every now and then, you'll see some of these sponsors from these older pay-per-views which have long since been discontinued. My personal favorite, 
Unforgiven 2000, which was sponsored by RC Cola Edge. No word on whether or not they had an RC Cola Christian. And I point this one out because Unforgiven took place in September of 2000, and RC Cola Edge was discontinued one month later. I imagine a lot of wrestling fans discovered that soda for the first time because they sponsored the show, and they were shit out of luck in a matter of weeks. Goddamn tragedy. But anyway, from there, we go back into the arena where the dress-wearing draws is heading to the ring. He grabs a mic and asks if anyone in the back is man enough to accept his challenge for an evening gown match, and as it turns out, someone does actually take him up on the offer, and it is your WWF Hardcore Champion Al Snow, who is indeed already wearing a dress. Where he got one on such short notice, I'm not sure, but so be it. Also, instead of the usual help me written backwards on his forehead, this time around Al appears to have written the word pretty backwards, so that's a nice change of pace. And of course, since he's the Hardcore Champion, Al accepts Draws' challenge, but only on the condition that this will be a hardcore evening gown match. Well, technically, he trips over his words and says, quote, We'll have an evening gown Mitch with you, but I think we get the idea. And so it will be Al Snow versus Draws in a hardcore evening gown match, and they never say that the hardcore title is on the line, so I'm just going to assume that this is a non-title Mitch. And as soon as it begins, Draws jumps Al Snow and throws him back first into the steel steps, and immediately Al must realize that he's in over his head because we can see that his dress clearly gets caught in the steps, and he struggles to get it free without ripping it. Hashtag, being a woman is difficult. And from there, we get our first quote-unquote comedy spot of the match, as Al pulls down the straps on Draws's dress to reveal that Draws is wearing pasties over his nipples. And sweet Jesus, I hope for Draws's sake that those things didn't stick to his nipple piercings, because yikes. By the way, I should also note that JR is doing that not-so-subtle thing he does where he buries the match without actually burying it, as he jokingly says that he remembers the first one of these contests back in 1968. So basically, he's mocking the idea of it without openly saying, well, this is fucking stupid. I think we can read between the lines, though. But thankfully, though, we pretty much just go straight to the finish as Al grabs a pair of barbecue tongs and draws whips him off the ropes. Draws then ducks down to go for a backdrop, but Al slides beneath him and proceeds to grab Draws's balls with the barbecue tongs. And from there, we go from tongs to thongs, as Al just pulls Draws's dress down to the mat, exposing his thong, and of course, as per evening on match rules, that means that your winner is indeed Al Snow. And then, for seemingly no reason whatsoever, even though he has just won the match, Al decides to clobber Draws in the head with a steel chair, he then sits Draws on a table that's positioned in one of the corners, he sets up the chair, gets a running start, hops off the chair, leaps onto Draws, and puts him through a table. I'm not sure why he felt the need to do that since the match was already over, but sure, why not? However, while Al was attacking his already defeated opponent, Prince Albert ran down to ringside with his piercing kit. He then proceeded to pull out a hammer and what appeared to be a railroad spike, and unfortunately for Al Snow, Albert then pierced Head's, uh, head with that railroad spike. So yes, Head has been disfigured by one of Prince Albert's piercings. And I'm sure by now you've heard that saying, that's five minutes of my life I'll never get back. Well, anytime someone Googles that phrase, I think this entire segment should probably be the first result. Men wearing dresses for quote-unquote comedy, barbecue tongs to the balls, an unnecessary post-match beatdown, a mannequin head getting impaled by a spike, your honor, I rest my case.
And from there, we go to footage from earlier tonight where D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry are in the trainer's room. And I'm going to play a clip here just so you can hear this doctor deliver one of the worst line recitations in wrestling history. I know you're digging this new gear, man. Man, it's about time you got some boots. It's about time you got new gear, but that doesn't matter. What we need to think about is the acolytes. We beat them, brother. We become the number one contenders. All we got to do is focus on Bradshaw. He got dropped on his head two weeks ago. you can't wrestle tonight, man. What are you talking about, Doc? Your blood pressure is 190 over 120. Ooh, That'd be dangerous. Man, I'm all right, man. Mark, 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 listen to the doc, man. You don't want your head to explode or like that kid to stroke have a heart attack. Hey, you can't wrestle tonight, man. Great stuff. Also, I don't mean to say that doctor had a thick southern accent, but even Colonel Rob Parker watched that segment and said, Oh, you need to dial down a notch there, boy. But anyway, the key takeaway here is that Mark Henry has high blood pressure, and so it appears that he will not be able to wrestle tonight, even though he and D'Lo were scheduled to face the Acolytes for the right to become the number one contenders for the tag team titles. And I should note that around this time, there were rumors going around that the WWF was not pleased with Mark Henry because he wasn't able to lose weight. And on this episode of Raw, they do a backstage segment where he's barred from wrestling tonight due to his high blood pressure, a condition which can obviously be brought on by being overweight. So was that a case of the WWF intentionally bringing up Mark Henry's backstage issues on camera in order to humiliate him? You be the judge, but I think I know how I'd vote on this one. And on that note, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where the aforementioned Acolytes are heading to the ring. And just as a quick side note here, the Acolytes Titantron video cracks me up every time because the beginning of it is literally just sped up footage of the two of them walking down the ramp. I mean, they've been together as a tag team for about nine months at this point, and their matches consist of them stiffing the living shit out of their opponents. You mean to tell me you couldn't just put a few in-ring clips in there? I wouldn't think that would be too hard, but oh well. So anyway, both Farouk and Bradshaw proceed to get some mic time, and they say that since D'Lo and Mark Henry are now unavailable, they want some replacements. However, no one shows up, so Bradshaw says they'll go to the locker room and find a fight there, but before they can head to the back, the big shot, Hardcore Holly, meets them on the ramp. And surprisingly, Holly actually gets a bit of a babyface moment here, because he slaps Bradshaw in the face, and then he tries to go one versus two against Farouk and Bradshaw. And, well, as you might expect, that doesn't turn out too well for him, as the Acolytes end up kicking his ass for a little while, culminating with a spike powerbomb. Holly then rolls outside the ring, and the fight continues, but before the Acolytes can do any more damage, the Big Show emerges from backstage, and he kicks Bradshaw in the chest. He then picks up Hardcore Holly and carries him up the ramp, as Holly protests by saying that he had the Acolytes right where he wanted them. So just to recap here, Even though we just saw the Big Show a little while ago volunteering to team with Stone Cold Steve Austin in the main event, he is also coming to the aid of Hardcore Holly, who is about as far away from Stone Cold's level as possible. I mean, honestly, if you're teaming with the top guy in the entire industry, why would you give two shits about Hardcore friggin' Holly? Frankly, at this point, I think the Big Show is just trying to monopolize as much television time as possible. And so, from there, we cut to footage from... GTV, and this week we see Stephanie McMahon talking to, of all people, Joey Abs in a stairwell somewhere. So let's take a listen to how that plays out. I know things, you know, it maybe didn't go right last time, but look, I've changed. You know, it'll be different this time. Come on, just please give me one more chance. Sir. You know what, Joey? You were an idiot then, and you're an idiot now. I went out with you for one reason and one reason only, and that was for my brother Shane. 
and I'll never do it again. Stay away from me. Wow. I know that. What about that? So apparently, Stephanie McMahon used to date Joey Abs. And I have to wonder, in the present day, do you think Joey Abs looks back on his time with her and thinks, damn, it could have been me. Whenever someone won a belt in NXT, they could have had their picture taken backstage with Joey Abs. And Attitude Era Stable could have been the McMahon Abs Era. The future owner of the WWE could have been Joey Abs. But alas, it just wasn't in the cards. But I should also note that in that GTV clip, Joey gets a bit too friendly with Stephanie as he puts his hand on her cheek, which causes her to slap it away. And as you heard there, Steph says that the only reason she dated him in the first place was because of Shane, but she won't make that mistake again. And that provides a fitting segue, because after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where it is time for a gauntlet match. Stephanie's current boyfriend, Test, will have to face all three members of the Mean Street Posse in consecutive matches. And the first man to step up to the plate will be none other than Pete Gass. And as you might expect, poor Pete doesn't last too long, as Tess jumps him before he can even get in the ring, and then he throws him over the announce table, rolls him back into the ring, and hits him with a really beautiful-looking top-rope elbow drop, and in less than a minute, your winner of the match is, indeed, Test. And so that means that it's now Rodney's turn to run the gauntlet, and he reluctantly enters the fray. And at this point, I have to note something that Jerry Lawler says on commentary. In order to make the point that Greenwich, Connecticut is an incredibly expensive place to live, he says that gasoline costs a whopping $1.60 a gallon. So I actually looked this up. You can go on the website for the Energy Information Administration and look up gas prices for the state of Connecticut going all the way back to 1983. So I looked up the average price for gas in Connecticut in July of 1999 when this episode of Raw takes place, and the average price for gasoline was 68 cents a gallon. 68 cents. This was in our lifetime, folks. I was in high school. I remember it happening, and yet it seems like forever ago. Suddenly I feel even older than I am. But anyway, that brief foray into Connecticut gasoline prices actually lasted longer than Rodney did in this match because Test hits him with a pump handle power slam in less than a minute, and so the big man is now two for two in the gauntlet. But now he must face the man who was just seen backstage hitting on his girlfriend, Joey Abs. And, well, this one didn't last very long either, because before the match could even get going, Shane McMahon quickly ran into the ring and chop-blocked Test from behind, Shane went on the offensive for a bit, but of course, Test quickly overwhelmed him. However, we then got an appearance by Steve Blackman, of all people, who has apparently become a hired gun for the McMahons lately. But since this wasn't overbooked enough already, Blackman's arch-nemesis Ken Shamrock ran down to the ring, and the two of them proceeded to brawl off through the crowd. Meanwhile, back in the ring, Test was left by himself to go one-on-four against Shane and the Mean Street Posse, and the posse got the better of him, with Rodney then putting a steel chair around Tess's leg. And at this point, I think the intent was for Rodney to jump on the chair and pilmanize Tess's ankle, but he did it so weakly that the crowd didn't even react. And then he did it again a second time, and the crowd still didn't react. In case you need a reminder, Rodney is not a trained wrestler. And so, at this point, various referees and WWF officials start running into the ring to try and get Shane and the posse to stop their beating, and from there, things take a bit of an unexpected turn. Look at Shane! He's possessed! The posse trying to break 
Bill Sanko, Shamrock and Blackman have fought out of sight. And now here comes Stephanie McMahon. What? Stephanie McMahon. Oh! Oh, my God, him. Stephanie tried to re- restrain her brother, and he didn't see her. So as I said previously, various referees and officials were running into the ring, but eventually Stephanie McMahon also ran in to try to get Shane to stop beating on Test. However, Stephanie grabbed Shane around his waist from behind, so he assumed that it was an official trying to restrain him, so Shane threw an elbow backwards, accidentally knocking out his own sister. And as you heard in that clip, it actually drew a stunned oh from the crowd. And I have to say, if you go back and look at the faces of the fans in the crowd after Shane lands that elbow to Stephanie's face, you can immediately see that many of the people in camera range are reacting with stunned, open-mouthed gasps. They were not expecting that, and clearly, they bought into the angle. And I'll go ahead and say it, this was pretty brilliant. Now, keep in mind, we've never seen Stephanie take any sort of bump up to this point. She's been portrayed as Vince's sweet, innocent daughter. So when her own brother accidentally nails her right in the face with a really stiff-looking elbow, it makes the angle resonate. And just to be clear, I'm certainly not encouraging the company to knock out a woman just to get a reaction. My point is that this is different than, say, Randy Savage just straight up slapping Tori Wilson in the face like we had last week on Nitro, or Road Dog punching China in the face earlier tonight. This was clearly portrayed as a mistake by Shane, and as you heard in that clip, he then immediately panics and says that he needs to get her some help. In fact, Shane actually picks Stephanie up and carries her out of the arena and to the backstage area while he's seemingly on the verge of tears. So again, I don't want to see an angle where a man knocks out a woman, but if you're going to do it, this was pretty much the most effective way of ensuring that it was in no way glamorized or glorified, just for the record. Although, granted, they probably didn't need to show so many replays of it afterward. But regardless, Shane has clearly fucked up, and we actually get some shades of gray here because he's a super dickhead heel, but obviously he cares for his wounded babyface sister. Their family, it makes sense. Well, I guess it would make more sense if he hadn't worked with The Undertaker to facilitate her getting kidnapped and married to him against her will a few months ago, but I suppose we'll just ignore that part. But anyway, after some commercials, we get footage from During the Break, where Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman continued beating the shit out of each other in the backstage area until even more WWF officials and some jobbers ran in to try and separate them. Fun fact, one of those jobbers trying to separate them was the recently rehired Tracy Smothers, who is thankfully no longer going by the name Freddie Joe Floyd. And strangely, Smothers actually ends up wrestling Michael P.S. Hayes on that weekend's edition of Shotgun Saturday Night. So there's a fun little time capsule for you there if you want to go back and look it up, which you almost certainly do not. And from there, we then cut elsewhere backstage where Michael Cole is with The Undertaker and Kane. 
Cole says it appears as though the Brothers of Destruction are back together again, and Taker says that yes, that is indeed the case. Kane, however, just kind of stands around with his back to the camera the entire time, so he doesn't confirm what Taker is saying, but then again, he doesn't deny it either. Perhaps we'll find out in the main event tonight. And after another commercial break, we get a graphic on the screen, and it says, Countdown to the Millennium, with a little clock counting down how much time is left. Also, much to my disappointment, they have clearly misspelled the word Millennium because it has only one N instead of two. I mean, for Christ's sake, spell check that shit. What the hell? But I digress. For those scoring at home, the countdown clock currently sits at 671 hours, 9 minutes, and 47 seconds. And in case you need some quick math to be done for you there, that amount of time translates to just under 28 days. And 28 days from this episode of Raw would be Monday, August 9th, 1999. So apparently, the Millennium will be coming about four and a half months early. Now, obviously, many of you are probably well aware of what this countdown is leading to, but just in case you're not, I'll keep it a surprise. So stay tuned, because I dare say you will not be disappointed. And so it is now time for our main event tag team match, WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Big Show versus the seemingly reunited Undertaker and Kane. And interestingly, when Kane comes to the ring, he's carrying what appears to be some sort of giant wrench. I'm not sure what to call it, but it looks like a tool that would be used to tighten some very large lug nuts. And why is Kane carrying that big-ass weapon? Well, we have to flash back to last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat once again, where the Big Show hit Kane in the head with that very same wrench after the Big Red Machine defeated Bradshaw in a no-holds-barred match. In case you need a reminder, last week on Raw, The Undertaker and Kane beat the shit out of The Big Show, so apparently that wrench shot to the head on Heat was a bit of payback from show. And so, coming back to our Raw main event tonight, Kane tries to attack The Big Show with the wrench on the ramp before Stone Cold has even made his entrance, but show ducks, and the two of them begin to brawl. Austin then makes his entrance to another massive pop, and he and Taker square off. And so, what we have here to start is basically some good old-fashioned Attitude Era brawling, Austin and Taker fight each other from the ramp down to the area near the stage, while Big Show and Kane brawl at ringside. Eventually, though, Stone Cold and The Undertaker make their way back down the ramp, and they head into the ring. And at this point, we get a rare moment of things not exactly going Stone Cold's way. With Taker down on the mat, Austin tries to untie the turnbuckle pad, but he can't get it undone. He even tries loosening the ropes with his teeth, but he still can't get it untied, and we can audibly hear him yell, Son of a bitch! out of frustration, before he finally gives up and turns his attention back toward The Undertaker. Continuing on with Stone Cold and The Big Show double-teaming The Undertaker in the ring, Kane decided to leave and head backstage, or so we thought. Because as it turns out, he was actually going to grab that big-ass wrench, which he had previously left on the ramp. And so, with Big Show about to chokeslam Taker... Kane re-emerged and walloped Big Show in the back with the wrench. The only problem there is, we didn't see it. The camera was focusing too tightly on Big Show, so we had to rely on Jim Ross telling us that Kane hit Show with the wrench. A rare production fuck-up by the WWF at this point in time. So the match continues on with both teams brawling amongst each other, with referee Earl Hebner doing absolutely nothing to restore order. The match literally ends up being a tornado tag match because both teams just fought amongst each other with no one ever tagging in or waiting on the ring apron. And at this point, we actually get a bit of an abrupt finish, so let's take a listen. The rattlesnake out. And here comes the Undertaker back. Oh, Undertaker. 
And the Undertaker with another hard right here, right to the head of Austin. Undertaker obviously trying to open that cut up again on Austin. There it is, he's done it. Oh, he's done it. Yeah, you see it. The Undertaker has opened Austin up again the second time tonight. That's the way it'll be in first blood, just like that. If it's this, just a second, it could be over. If this was a first blood match, the Undertaker would be the WWE champion. But it's not, and that's a stunner. The leg is hooked out of nowhere. A bloody stone cold Steve Austin has defeated Kane. And fully loaded on pay-per-view, that man, The Undertaker, will be the WWF champion. It'll happen, JR. Just take a look at that. You're seeing into the future of Stone Cold Steve Austin, a bloody mess. Ah, oh, God, what a demonic human being. The personification of evil. Will The Undertaker be the next WWF champion? Will Stone Cold be able to overcome The Undertaker and Kane? Austin is a bloody mess. But tonight, and maybe tonight only, he's still the WWF champion. So with Austin down on the mat, we get the pretty cool visual of The Undertaker squeezing Stone Cold's skull with his hand, which results in Austin's forehead starting to bleed once again. If you need a frame of reference, I would liken it to squeezing the juice out of an orange, emphasis on juice. However, Big Show quickly clotheslines Taker over the top rope and down to the floor, and Kane follows up by tossing Big Show over the top rope as well, and at that point, Kane turns back around, where he receives a kick to the stomach, followed by a stone-cold stunner. Austin makes the cover, referee Earl Hebner makes the count, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Yes, just that quickly, your winners of the match are the Big Show and a once-again bloody stone-cold Steve Austin. And we then go off the air with Stone Cold yelling at The Undertaker from the ring as Taker taunts him from the ramp. And as JR said, if Undertaker makes Austin bleed yet again at fully loaded, he will once again be the WWF champion. And so, that's the end of the show, right? Well, technically yes, but if you're watching this episode on Peacock, you will find out that there is one feature from the WWE Network which has also made the transition to that site, and that would be Extra Attitude. Yes, even though the show is over, we do get an additional four minutes of footage from after this episode of Raw went off the air. And in case you're wondering, that footage consists of Stone Cold giving Big Show a high five, which actually gets a nice reaction from the crowd. Austin then does his customary celebration of asking timekeeper Mark Eaton to toss him a bunch of beers, he shares a few with Big Show, and then Show heads backstage. Austin appears as though he's going to head back to the locker room as well, but then he runs back into the ring and asks for some more beers as the celebration continues, and that's pretty much it. He drinks some more beers, and then he leaves. However, I do want to note one thing here, because when you look at the crowd, almost no one has left. At this point, it's after 11 o'clock p.m. on a Monday, and no one would blame these fans for rushing to their cars to try and beat traffic, because most of them probably need to be up early for work the next day, and yet, they stay in the arena purely because they want to see Stone Cold Steve Austin just a little bit longer. It really is something to behold, and well, folks, I just, I wish we could go back. I wish we could go back. But anyway, that's the end of this episode of Raw, but we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We 
dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Come on, Not a stone cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. WWF fans for winning when we fucking. The Ratings Recap Well, actually, before getting into the ratings, WCW had a pay-per-view the previous night, Bash at the Beach 1999, and there were a couple noteworthy things that happened at the show. For starters, this was the pay-per-view which featured the infamous Junkyard Invitational, and at this point, I'll go to this week's excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. Quote, The incident with the most far-reaching consequences was a Junkyard Battle Royal. Though they spent $100,000 to put on the match, which took place in a real honest-to-goodness junkyard, WCW did not see fit to advertise the match on Nitro, therefore no one bought the show to see it. Furthermore, Damien, Cyclope, and Mikey Whipwreck all suffered serious injuries, as the junkyard was a truly dangerous environment. All three men were out of action for months. End quote. And in case you're wondering, Fit Finley ended up winning the match, and on the note of Finley, people sometimes lump him in with the group of wrestlers who were seriously injured in this match, but that's actually not the case. It's two weeks after this at a house show where Finley suffers a serious injury against Brian Nobbs in a hardcore match. How bad was it? Well, here's a quote from an interview that Nobbs did with WrestleZone in 2016. Quote, I threw him through a table in Tupelo, Mississippi. We thought the table was good. He took off, and when I went over to see him, the top part of the table was made with formica and almost cut off his leg. It was the worst I ever saw. I stopped right there. I took my Nasty Boy shirt off and put it around him because he was bleeding. I called for the medics. I didn't really care the match was still going at that time. He went and lost all the nerves in his foot and everything. He had to wear a brace for a long time. End quote. And yes, according to various reports, Finley was told that they considered amputating his leg because the injury was so bad, but thankfully, they did not have to go that route. He will be out of action for five months, though, so no, he doesn't get hurt on this night, but that injury does happen very, very soon. And the other big story from Bash at the Beach 99 was the main event. WCW World Champion Kevin Nash and Sting teamed up to face Randy Savage and Sid, and somehow, even though this was a tag match... Nash's world title was on the line, so whoever pinned him could become the world champion. And as you may recall, last week's episode of Nitro ended with Randy Savage slapping Tori Wilson in the face and throwing his girlfriend Gorgeous George out a door. And so, when Gorgeous George came to the ring tonight, she removed a pair of her sunglasses to reveal that she had a black eye. So yup, they're really going there, folks. And before the match started, Gorgeous George actually left Savage's side and went to Nash and Sting's corner, so it would appear that she's leaving her abusive boyfriend, and I say it would appear that way because, well, take a listen to how the match concludes. Savage has him. Savage has him right now if he wants him. Take him. Take him, Savage. Somebody has him if they want him. Sid Vicious. Scoop slams Nash down. Savage off that top. Top 
So yes, you heard that correctly. Gorgeous George, despite being given a black eye by Randy Savage, shockingly swerved Kevin Nash and hit him with a low blow. And by the way, she somehow missed the first low blow attempt and had to redo the spot, so clearly Gorgeous George is not living up to the ring prowess of the man who previously held that nickname. And from there, even though Sid could have pinned Nash himself to win the title, instead he slammed Nash to the mat so Savage could go to the top rope and hit his trademark elbow drop, and that was good enough to secure the victory. Your winner and the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. And just to circle back on this because it bears repeating, WCW just ran an angle where an abused woman helped the man who was beating her win the title, and then she celebrated with him after the match. I mean, that is a big old yikes if ever there was one. Holy shit. So yes, that is how Bash at the Beach 1999 went off the air. And in case you're wondering about the buy rate, this show brought in only 175,000 pay-per-view buys, the least purchased WCW show since the disastrous NWO sold-out 1997 pay-per-view, which did only 170,000. Not good times for World Championship Wrestling. By the way, though, quick fun fact for you, I was one of those 170,000 buys for sold-out 1997. In fact, it was the only WCW pay-per-view I ever ordered. Oh yeah, at the time, I was big on the NWO people. Although clearly, after seeing that show, it wasn't a coincidence that I only ordered that one WCW pay-per-view. But anyway, so now we move on to Monday Nitro, where your new world champion, the Macho Man Randy Savage, issues an open challenge for a title match tonight against anyone except the man he pinned at Bash at the Beach, and, well, you might be a bit surprised at who shows up to accept that offer. Let me say this again. I challenge anybody but Kevin Nash, Big Sexy, because he does not deserve a chance at the title because he is a zero in life. And I got his number, and his number is zero. So that's the deal, mean Gene Oakland. Meet the Macho Man Randy Savage, and I happen to be the world heavyweight champion. I think, well, I will shake your hand, but but I must say there is a cloud of controversy that still hangs over that victory. What's this?
proud when you walked out here tonight? Well, you know something, Mean Gene? Am I hearing things? Or did the Macho Man say anybody? Yes, that's right. After a three-month absence, Hollywood Hulk Hogan has returned to WCW to answer Randy Savage's open challenge for a title match tonight on Nitro. And here's a fun bit of trivia for you. This is the first time Hulk Hogan has been a babyface in WCW since his awesome heel turn at Bash at the Beach 96 three years prior. And as you heard in that clip, the crowd was certainly ready for it. Now, I suppose the real issue here is that they're giving away the mega powers exploding on free television with only about two and a half hours of buildup, but hey, they're clearly desperate to spike a good rating at this point. And so, let's fast forward to our main event match on Nitro, Savage vs. Hogan, to see how it all played out. So what you heard there was Randy Savage knocking out Hulk Hogan with a chain behind the referee's back, but when he went for the pinfall, Kevin Nash showed up and pulled referee Mickey J out of the ring before he could count to three. And once Nash did that, uh, I guess Mickey J must have fallen below the ring because then he didn't see Nash powerbomb Savage before leaving once again. So yes, after that powerbomb, Hogan made the cover, Mickey J reemerged, and he counted the one, the two, and the three, your winner and the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion for the sixth time, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Yes, Randy Savage's final world title reign ends after a grand total of 24 hours. And funny enough, if you go back to Savage's previous WCW World Title reign in 1998, he won it at Spring Stampede and then lost it 24 hours later to Hulk Hogan. I'm sensing a pattern. And if you want to hear an even more depressing statistic, Savage held the WCW title on four separate occasions for a grand total of 53 days. So on average, his world title reigns lasted about 13 days, with his longest one being a whopping 31 days. So alas, we never got a lengthy Randy Savage world title run in WCW. And that's a damn shame. But okay, so WCW gave us a Hulk Hogan world title victory on free TV in an attempt to bump up their ratings. So did it work? Well, the answer is... kinda? 
because Nitro did indeed improve on last week's number, going from a 3.27 up to a 3.45, and the Savage Hogan quarter hour did a 4.7 rating, which is the highest quarter hour they've had in months. But of course, as you might expect, Raw still beat Nitro easily with a 5.97 rating, which was basically the same number they did the previous week. When you give away the WrestleMania 5 main event on free TV and you can barely make a dent in Raw's dominance, I'm sure they've got to be thinking that they're running out of cards to play at this point. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw synopsis. So all things considered, I can say that I would give this episode of Raw a big thumbs up. Almost everything was pretty enjoyable with the noteworthy exception of that draws Al Snow evening gown match. The Stone Cold Undertaker feud is doing a nice job of heating up, and I enjoyed the great touch of Taker signing the contract in Austin's blood. I even think they're doing a pretty good job with the rivalry between current DX and former DX, and maybe I'm just a sucker, but I absolutely did not see The Rock being the mystery partner for that match, but it did make sense because of the overlapping storylines, so well done there, Vince Russo. And not to harp on this again, but my god, that Shane McMahon elbow to Stephanie's face, wow. I really can't remember the last time I heard an entire arena full of people collectively all gasp at the same time. So again, big kudos to all involved. I almost hate to say it, but if you were to go back and watch one thing from this episode, I would say it should probably be that angle. But honestly, you should go back and just watch the whole show, because I think you really will enjoy the whole thing. And finally, before we finish up, here are a few notes from this week's edition of The Wrestling Observer. As mentioned during Raw, reigning governor of Minnesota Jesse Ventura will be involved at SummerSlam 99 in some capacity, but interestingly, apparently WCW also made a play at bringing in Ventura. Jesse had bad blood with Vince McMahon in the past, but he saw that as being just business. On the other side, he wasn't as willing to work with WCW because he hates Hulk Hogan. In case you're not familiar with this story, way back in the 80s, Jesse was trying to get the wrestlers to unionize but Hogan went behind his back and told Vince about it, and so Jesse has basically seen Hogan as a stooge ever since. So if you were ever wondering why the governor never made an appearance in WCW after he left in 1994, there you go. And speaking of politics, Jerry Lawler recently announced he would be running for mayor of Memphis, and immediately he was attacked by several groups because he has racy pictures of his girlfriend Stacy Carter all over his website. Because, you know, he's clearly unfit to be mayor because his girlfriend is... sexy? Can't argue with that logic. And by the way, going back and reading about this story made me remember those pictures of Stacy that Lawler would put on his website back then because she's pretty much naked in several of them. And, well, as a teenager in 1999, they certainly were a welcome sight. I'll just uh, leave it at that. And speaking of sexy women, in case you're wondering what Sable has been up to since she left the WWF... As a reminder, we saw her make that one-off appearance in the crowd on an episode of Nitro in mid-June, but now she has a new venture doing an infomercial for a fitness product called the Ab Pad. How would you like to look better naked? Now you can. Hi, I'm Rena Marrow, and I'd like to introduce you to our exciting new exercise product, the Ab Pad. It's simple to use, and it's designed to give you a total body workout. The ab pad targets the chest, glutes, shoulders, arms, and legs while allowing you to sculpt those sexy abs. So, yeah, needless to say, that post-wrestling career is not off to the best start, but we all have to start somewhere, though. Scott Hall recently attended an ECW house show in Florida, which was certainly noteworthy because it was on the same night as Bash at the Beach. 
In what will come as no surprise, Hall pretty much hung out at the venue's bar all night, and it detracted from various portions of the show because the fans were continuously chanting for him. And even Bubba Ray Dudley called attention to this at one point, grabbing a microphone and flat-out asking Hall why he wasn't at Bash at the Beach. A big WCW star getting paid millions of dollars, and he's hanging out in the crowd at a rival promotion the same night that WCW is hosting a pay-per-view. Talk about a big ol' F.U. to his employer. And finally, speaking of big ol' F.U.'s, here's a quick excerpt from Bret Hart's newspaper column in this week's Calgary Sun. Quote, Saw a strange sight yesterday, dogs rolling in manure and loving every minute of it. For some reason, it made me think of how the British Bulldog will do anything to work for the WWF. End quote. So clearly, the hitman is not too happy with his brother-in-law's intentions to get back into the company that killed Owen less than two months ago. I suppose I could see his point there, but will Davey ever actually end up back in the WWF? Well, I guess you'll just have to wait and find out. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes or on Spotify, because that helps us find an even wider audience, and of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or, if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars without writing a review, because that's helpful too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, and so, because Jesse Ventura is returning to the WWF for SummerSlam 1999 after a nine-year absence, I will leave you now with a clip from a shoot interview that he did with the Title Match Network in 2014. And in this clip, he talks about how he ended up leaving the WWF in 1990, along with his current views on the WWE's uh, unique contract situations. And so, I invite you to enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Did you have a dispute with Vince over the video game, too? What happened with that? Uh, yeah, because I, I came up to Vince. I had a company proposal come up to me and want to do a whole video game. I mean, I told Vince I was going to do it, and he said I couldn't. That's what caused us to separate. That's what caused me to leave. Because I said, Vince, you, you don't own me. I said, I own the copyright of my own name. I can do with it what I want. And he said, if you do this, you're finished. I said, okay, I'm finished. And I left. You, you were talking a little bit about unionizing the business. Um, do you think it's legal to classify WWE wrestlers as contractors? No. I can't figure out how he gets away with the federal government. In fact, he's lucky I didn't become a U.S. senator. I would have started a senatorial investigation over it. Wow. They are not independent contractors by any stretch of the imagination. My God, they tell you when you'll wrestle. They tell you who you'll wrestle. You can't wrestle for anyone else. An independent contractor, I should be able to wrestle for any organization I want. You're, you're signed exclusively. Right. How the hell can they get away with that? That's, that's something wrestling has gotten away with. It's been criminal. And, and why do you think nobody has been able to prove this in court at all? They could prove it. It's just that the government don't give a damn. All right. That's all it is. Why, what does the government care about wrestling for?